This is Charisma Connection. I'm Chris Johnson, and we continue our special series on human trafficking here in the United States. And if you're in tune with social issues at all, you know that this has become a big one that's affecting families across our nation and often unexpectedly. We're going to hear from Jean Allert in this important message Then we'll be back to speak with her more about what leads to a person becoming a victim of human trafficking. Domestic sex trafficking is being called the human rights crisis of our times. This insatiable and unrestrained trade takes a child of God and turns that person into a product, destroying them physically, mentally, spiritually. Can you even imagine the level of abuse and isolation a victim experiences? The Samaritan women can. They have been serving victims of sexual exploitation for over 12 years and are joining us at Charisma to share their experiences and call the faithful to rise up against this evil. We have to address the demand and prevent further victimization. We also have to stand in the gap for those who have already suffered horrific abuse. The Spirit has moved the Samaritan women to raise up qualified shelters across the nation. So when that one child, that one woman is able to leave, There's a qualified Christian program ready to receive them. Please join us in this important series and prayerfully consider lending your support. To learn more, visit sheltercareusa.org. Jean, you've been with us on this series before, and we welcome you once again to Charisma Connection. Thank you, Chris. I've read about your education You have a master's in education, a master's in divinity, and now you're pursuing a doctorate in psychology with a concentration in trauma. Very interesting. So you've got that education, you've got some expertise, and you've certainly done the work to get qualified to start and work at the Samaritan Women Organization. Could you tell us what it's all about? Remind us what the Samaritan Women does. We started with a call to directly serve the wounded, those who have been um, victimized in domestic sex trafficking. And for the first 12 to 13 years of the Samaritan women's existence, we were operating residential shelter programs that offered restorative care. And what that means is that the women would be referred from all over the country. They would come live with us. We would implement uh, a series of services and programming and do life with them uh, as they walked through the very difficult steps of rebuilding their lives so that they could uh, re-enter society in a, in a productive and healthier way. And I would say out of all of the credentials that you mentioned, though the credential I'm most proud of is how well I've been schooled by the ladies themselves. Uh, no doubt. So we're going to talk a little bit about what lessons that you've learned from them. But first, I'd like to ask you, what really drives you personally to do the work that you do? This whole thing came about uh, as a call from the Lord. I was in a very comfortable uh, corporate life running running a company and making unnecessary amounts of money and sort of jet set, if you will. <laughs> I never heard anyone um, call it that. <laughs> I I call it my wall of affluence. I I Uh, really was disconnected from um, the suffering of the world because I was so comfortable. mm -hmm. And um, God spared me that. Uh, He introduced me uh, through uh, just 
what I thought was a chance meeting uh, with uh, a Korean group, a Presbyterian group here in Maryland that was doing street outreach in a really rough part of Baltimore. Hmm. And I, I, they asked me to come along and I went and I had no way of knowing that God was planning a divine appointment. Uh, and there I met Heather. And that encounter changed my life. Um, meeting somebody who literally puts flesh on, uh, on an issue. Um, I think that's why we have an incarnate God, right? Because we, we, it, it, there's flesh on it now. And, um, that brought me into her story, her suffering, how she got there. Um, and she has, was the beginning of what changed my trajectory completely. And, um, once you have an encounter like that, you really can't look back. Um, and so that led me to sell my home, sell my company (laughs) and, um, have a complete 180. Uh, but I, I wouldn't have missed a moment of it because, uh, of the richness that comes out of knowing that you're now leading a life of, of purpose and selflessness. So you actually owned your own business? Yes. Mm -hmm. I had a consulting company in Washington, DC for about 17 years. I see. So that does take a while to get out of all that. You know, I went down to 20% of my prior income, moving mm. from the for-profit to the to the not-for-profit. Um, that's not sustainable over the long term. I'm not recommending it as a strategy. But, <laughs> um, but it was the path that he had me on, and I, and I think a lot of it has to do with sometimes the Lord says, are you willing to release what you're holding on to so tightly? in order to have what I want to give you. And I had to let a lot of things go. Well, this is when you know you're called. Amen. Now, the Samaritan Women has served over 100 women. What have you learned from the histories of these, I assume, all young women you've dealt with? Yeah, the you know our average age of intake when we started was 26, but it started dropping very quickly to around 20 and 21. Um, on average, they've been trafficked for about four to four and a half years, which means they were exploited as children. Mm. But I think the biggest learnings that we have had out of that uh, group of women and what we've learned from others is that the number one common denominator in this population is childhood sexual abuse. And we went in thinking that that about the stereotype of, oh, this must be, you know, the kid that grows up in poverty in the inner city with a single parent household. And and often that can be true. Um, but child abuse can happen in any home. Eighty seven percent of our population grew up in substance abusing households, and that can be in affluent families as well. You know, daddy can be making millions of dollars, but he's an alcoholic and he's hurting you. Um, And 70% of our population grew up in fatherless homes. And I didn't have any imagination that what we were really dealing with was more than the trauma of trafficking, but it was really a lifetime of trauma that they have known since sometimes birth that they... uh, the abandonment, the fatherlessness, the abuse, uh, substance abuse. The, we, we now know in the United States that 60% of the kids who are being exploited in America were in the foster care system. Mm-hmm. And so that estrangement from 
uh, a stable family environment. So it's been a really interesting educational journey to understand that a lot of the wounds that we attend to are the wounds inflicted in childhood that are still present today. And trafficking in many ways just re-exploits the vulnerable. Hmm. It's very sad, isn't it? So every person's story is different, but there are these commonalities. Uh, how exactly, though, does someone become a victim of sex trafficking? You know, there's a very intentional process that goes uh, to taking somebody who's a human being and manufacturing them into a product. It's spelled out in the definition of human trafficking, but in, in lay terms, it starts with the same way child molesters function. First, they have to identify a vulnerable child. And so in our day and age, that is largely done on the internet platform through social media, through gaming, through chat rooms, through apps, um, where children have, predators have access to children, uh, oftentimes 24 seven. And children in their youth, uh, immaturity, share a lot of information. Uh, if somebody says, hey, send me a picture of you, now send me a picture of you this way, now send me a picture of you that way, what the predator is learning is that child is willing to take risks, that child is willing to break the rules, that child is seeking attention from that other person, and there's obviously not an adult in the picture that's filtering those behaviors. So I would say recruitment is a huge common piece of how predators first gain access to oftentimes children is through social vulnerability, family vulnerability. I love the fact that you opened the program by saying the effect on families, because what we see often is that it's the disruption or the absence of family that makes children the most vulnerable. But the lures are often things like romance, uh, attention, sometimes gifts, sometimes wealth, sometimes fame. But what we see most often is it's a relational uh, hook and lure that if you're being ignored at home or your latchkey or your foster care, you, there's promises of, I'll be your daddy. We'll be a family. I'll love you forever. Hmm. And boy, that's, that's a tough one for all of us. We, we all want that. It's a human need that they play to, Absolute. isn't it? Absolutely. So what are the most uh, common services that you provide for trafficked victims? You know, that too has been a journey in learning from the women because we went in with the assumption that because this is uh, sexual wounding that we would be dealing mostly with uh, sexually transmitted diseases, you know, uh, pregnancies, those kinds of things. Uh, oddly enough, we've never had anybody uh, HIV positive. Hmm. Uh, we have had other STDs, but the number one medical need that we have encountered, and it seems attested across the United States, is dental. And that caught us by surprise, but not after we began to understand that, first of all, dental care is neglected, but the other is that this is a population that gets hit in the face a lot. Hmm. And so oftentimes we see teeth are missing, they have abscess, they have tooth loss that was never taken care of, 
Um, they have um, assaults to their face, to their head, and so traumatic brain injury is also something that we believe is more present than we know, but it's often misdiagnosed. We also see um, the need to teach, to literally teach how to sleep, how to eat well, you know, sort of get to get the basic rhythms of life, because Mm -hmm. this is oftentimes a population that's Uh, could be very nocturnal, could be on drugs for several days to be kept awake because they can work more. Hmm. Um, You know, food is the number one form of coercion. So um, we have to be careful not to say she has an eating disorder if food was used to control her and food was actually an instrument of power. Hmm. So it really has been just this journey of Uh, suspend what you know and take in what you observe and what you experience and and be open to the question that it might not be what you think. It's really uh, stunning some of the things that you've just said. Um, I mean, the dental, who would think? (laughs) Who would think? Well, and I'll tell you one that's just emerging now is um, we're beginning to learn more and more that this population has a high incident of asphyxiation. Mm. And the, the tragedy of that is there are people who will pay to strangle them as part of the act. Oh, yes. And so what we can't see, you know, from the outside is what is the effect of having repeated interruption of oxygen to the brain? Hmm. Are we Are we misdiagnosing that as, memory problems or cognitive issues or learning disabilities when what's actually happened is physiological. Hmm. So it's really complex and we have a long way to go to, to understand fully what the needs are and then to align the appropriate services. It, it truly affects the whole person, doesn't it? Oh, absolutely. And speaking of that, no, no doubt these trafficking victims have spiritual needs like we all do but what does your ministry see spiritually when dealing with the needs of these women who've been trafficked you know we we are a christian organization and certainly we infuse our program with our religious character and so we offer bible study and and prayer and we say grace at the table and we use the bible as our plumb line for decision making And so that's woven into who we are and what we do. What we have found from this population largely is that the number one spiritual need that they have is to reconnect with the self. And that's really an identity issue. This is a a population that often has their identity stripped. They might get a new name. They might get their identification taken away. They certainly are removed from um, their family. And so they become kind of a persona non grata. They, they are a non-person. And so to reclaim your personhood, you know, we all have to figure out who are we? And we have to figure out who we are, but we also have to figure out who we are in Christ. And then without that foundation, we can't really figure out who we are in relationship to others. Mm-hmm. And so it really is that basic uh, is to we attend a lot to why was I born? If I was just born for abuse, why was I born? Does God really have a purpose for me? Do I matter? Those are big existential questions that are nothing but spiritual. Yes. 
every person has to answer those, but someone who's been through trafficking would certainly have a harder time with some of those. Absolutely. And so we consider that a privilege to to journey with them along in that in that quest as well. So uh, what what type of people do you have working with these victims? You know, it's also come as a bit of a surprise. Um, we've already established that I don't come from a clinical background. Um, most of our staff don't. And as a startup nonprofit, we really couldn't afford uh, individuals with, with certain credentials. What we have learned, though, is that this population, while they definitely need service providers who specialize in trauma, who can, for example, deliver dental services, being aware of the fact that the mouth was often used for abuse. Hmm. And so it takes on a different level of care and attention. And so we need service providers that can be very attuned to the wounding of this population. In the household, however, um, we have found that the people who do really well in the residential setting are those individuals who have a deep maturity within themselves because this is a very dysregulated population. They, they can be kind of all over the place. Mm-hmm. They're, they're in a state of change. And so if you've ever had a middle schooler or a junior high person in your house, you know, it's sort of every day, it's something different. And they're going through that same metamorphosis. And so we really need people who are very grounded, spiritually grounded, mature, um, people who are, um, have a strong mothering influence without, um, without being patronizing. Um, but you know how uh, a mother oftentimes knows with with her children how to pick her battles, yes. and <laughs> how yeah, and how to say okay, well, right now I'm just going to let the child cry, and the child will come back. I don't mean to again sound pejorative, but there is value in that kind of discernment in a situation to say, you know what, right now she might just need to cry, and that's okay. And we don't, we don't have to jump in and be afraid of the fact that she's feeling emotions because many of our women were assaulted if they cried. Hmm. I, I say to the girls all the time, cry until you run out of water <laughs> because you're making up for lost time. Yes. And we can buy Kleenex. It's, it's not a problem. <laughs> right. Um, and, and there are times when, frankly, the soul just needs to lament. So whether it's crying or whether to know that, yeah, sometimes it's okay to be angry because you are mad that your uncle abused you and you should be angry. That's an injustice against a child. Now, here's how to express anger in a healthy way. And uh, I'll tell you, we, I had one gal, uh, she was 16 and she was um, brutalized by her brother. And because it was family members, she just stuffed it and stuffed it and uh, never felt as though it was appropriate for her to express it. And in her family dynamic, the brother was the golden child. So Mm -hmm. she was the black sheep. Um, And so all the more reason that she just stuffed it and stuffed it. And she so had a problem expressing anger. And I remember at one point I could see that she was just spinning up, but she was going to cut herself off. And I said, you know what? We're going to go for a little walk. And we... 
we went out, your, your listeners who are in the country will get this, but we went out to the, the shed <laughs> and I laid out a bunch of bricks and I gave her a sledgehammer and some safety glasses and I said, have at it. <laughs> and she just tore them. I don't think that they were sand by the time she was done. She just pounded and pounded until she just fell into a puddle and wept. Hmm. And that's, that's the kind of spirit I think that we have to, we have to understand. She's got to go through it to get to the other side. And that requires a maturity and a patience on our part. Does that make sense? Yes. It's, very therapeutic sometimes to to beat a pillow or whatever <laughs> finding those appropriate outlets because you know she's she's not turning to drugs and alcohol now mm. she has to find another way mhm well what are one or two of the biggest lessons that you've learned in your ministry when working with these trafficking victims well that's taken uh a lot of, of quiet reflection. And I will say that it's, I'm going to give you two, but they all fall, fall under the same heading. And I'll quote Dr. Bruce Perry. Uh, he says that trauma cannot be healed outside of relationship. Hmm. And that has proven to be true again and again, giving somebody a pill and saying, you're going to be okay, but they're still alone in their suffering doesn't doesn't attend to the whole problem. What we have found is that community is vital to recovery because this is a population that has been ostracized. They've been shunned. You know, just like the story in John 4, she comes to fetch water in the middle of the day when nobody else would be there. Mm-hmm. So she is estranged from community. But what a beautiful story that by verse 39, she's running back into Samaria and she's telling everybody. And because of her testimony, many believe now she's accepted into community because she's bringing something to that community. Hmm. And what a great transformation that is. But the vital part not to be missed is she went from being isolated to being connected. And that has proven to be true again and again for us. In that relationship, the other big lesson for us has been that being present is more therapeutic than any skill, intervention, tool, technique, anything. Those are all just toolbox. But what really proves to be therapeutic is if we, the church, are willing to be present with individuals who are suffering. Because Every one of us that has suffered knows how lonely that feeling is. And so we don't have to, we need tools and techniques, but not at the expense of physical presence. There have been countless times when if the staff just sits at the side of her bed until she falls asleep, it's enough. Hmm. She, she didn't have to do anything else because the girl's been molested in her bed for years and she's afraid to go to sleep. And if she just knows somebody's watching over her, she can finally get to sleep. Very, that very matters. comforting. Mm-hmm. Very comforting. Very comforting. So I say that to encourage your listeners that if they aspire to get into this work and we are trying to call the church to step into this, don't be afraid of this. 
the, the, the very relational tools that we have are exactly what's needed. So I really, I can't say enough about we are calling for the faithful to step in and say, I can do that. I can be present. I can bring my maturity. I, I had a woman one time and she came to me and she said, I don't have any degrees. I don't have any skills. I don't have anything to bring to the table. I just want to be here. I said, that's enough. Hmm. We can work with that. She, and so she, I say she that too to your was listeners. Mm-hmm. She was she was called, and and through that heart, and and frankly obedience, because then she was called, and then with a willingness to do what was needed. Yes, and that's part of the obedience, not what you want, <laughs> but you know sometimes you don't want to sit there with a girl who just cut herself and she's bloody, and you don't want to be there. But her being alone is more detrimental. And if you can be present in those situations and have a peace of mind and pray through them, um, that can be extraordinarily powerful as a gift. Hmm. Well, it's a hard thing, but uh, I mean, we're also, those of us who are going to volunteer in these situations are also going to get something back from this, aren't we? Tenfold. Hmm. Tenfold. I, 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 that number is even too small. Every person who's ever come to work in this ministry has been personally changed. And you may have to go through some hard stuff yourself. There may be things in, in each of our lives that we haven't wanted to acknowledge. But when you see the strength of somebody else walking through suffering, it also turns around and gives us the encouragement to say, you know, I can go and deal with that hurt in my life. Um, you know, Henry Nowen writes about the wounded healer being really the best posture. Uh, for being in the healing arts is when you come with uh, with a readiness to deal with your own wounds, um, and then together we reach healing. Hmm. Well, all of us need some kind of healing, don't we? Amen. Well, we have Jesus as our great physician. And your website we want to give so that uh, people can learn more about the Samaritan women, about your important work. So that's sheltercareusa.org, sheltercareusa.org. Jeannie Allert, we thank you so much for being with us today, for, for sharing your personal experience as well as what you do there at the Samaritan Women. Thank you so much. I'm Chris Johnson. Thanks for joining us for this special series on human trafficking here on Charisma Connection. And be sure to check out the other episodes at cpnshows.com.